right. Thank you for joining me today. We have uh, Dr. Diana Anderson, a physician and healthcare architect with Jacobs, uh, Thomas Gray, a research fellow at Trinity House Research Center in Trinity College, Dublin, Ireland, and Dr. Des O'Neill, Center for Aging Neuroscience and the Humanities, Trinity College, Dublin, Ireland. So thank you all for joining me today. Uh, our topic we're going to really kind of dive into is the future of elder care and elder care facilities uh, with a special emphasis on what we have learned from our current pandemic and uh, you know the considerations to take into account for for elder care so to start and Diane, I'm going to start with you. Can you explain the importance of built environments for nursing homes and its impact on residents and you know particularly in light of, you know, pandemics and such uh, medical considerations. Sure. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be here and to, and to talk about this. You know, the, we as a group have, have worked together in the past, Tom and Des and myself and, and Sean, who's one of our team members who couldn't be here today, but, but we co-authored an article and thought we would center the discussion around some of what we researched and wrote about for this article, mm -hmm. thinking about resilience, nursing home design, and COVID specifically. I'd like all of us to comment on this question. I think it's an important one, Paul, but I, but I think the importance of the built environment for nursing homes is ex extremely great and perhaps not, not well understood, but COVID has, has certainly brought to light the impact of the architecture on health outcomes. We have fairly good evidence and research from the acute care environment, from hospitals, to show that the built environment can impact health outcomes with respect to whether you fall while you're in the hospital, especially if you're older, whether you sustain a medication error, whether you might become acutely confused or delirious, all of these issues impact older adults. And we know that the environment in hospitals have an impact. We have, I'd say, less research in the context of long-term care and congregate living settings to, to show those same outcomes. Um, but for instance, with COVID, we sort of are knowing now our data is showing us that older facilities with older models of design with shared rooms and larger congregate spaces for dining and socializing have not led to good outcomes in COVID and has have probably contributed to infection spread and morbidity and mortality. I think it's important from my perspective to think about the built environment as a parameter of care and it'll be interesting to hear from Des, who's a physician as well, you know, whether we think about this in long-term care and nursing homes, but the built environment can almost be considered a medical intervention in my mind and is, is very important, uh, mm. specifically where people live. You know, we're not, we're not staying in a nursing home for just a few days like we are in the hospital. People are living there. It's a home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm, I'm sure we'll kind of maybe touch on this or, or even dive into it, but I, it seems to me as somebody outside looking in that perhaps uh, medical or elder care, long-term care facilities weren't necessarily, and maybe they were, but weren't necessarily designed to handle, you know, pandemics or maybe that was, you know, maybe not at the forefront. And I wonder if now because of COVID-19 shedding some light on some of the challenges uh, that we might, uh, we might see some some changes in how that's approached. But turning to you, uh, Dr. Des, uh, you know, same question. You know, can you explain the importance of built environments for nursing homes and and what you see as the impact for residents? Yeah, I mean, this is. I actually think this is. I believe. I firmly believe, and certainly there is uh, circumstantial and other evidence suggesting that this is hugely important 
But we've got to bear in mind that uh, to a certain extent, society has averted its gaze from the area of nursing homes. So um, there really has been a little bit of everybody but nobody uh, directing in terms of leadership, in terms of how we merge together the idea of a domestic type environment that in many ways uh, liberates, facilitates uh, independence, living empowerment within the challenges of providing relatively sophisticated care. And I suppose we're, we are beginning to see a little bit of a turn. I think one of the silver linings of the COVID cloud is we're seeing a, a emphasis and attention towards what's happening in the nursing home sector. It's really clear, uh, I mean, for example, when we went looking in this area here, if we can take something really, really simple, and it's about putting the focus on the resident rather than the service. Uh, one of the early papers on infection control showed that in a nursing home that had, say, four blocks, three of the blocks had offices that were nothing necessarily to do with direct resident support. They had worse outcomes than the block that only had what the residents needed. So I, I do think there's, you know, there's an incredible synergy between uh, our psychological well-being, our physical well-being. Mm -hmm. we, we know, for example, in gerontology that how you subjectively feel actually tells more about how you're going to survive than supposedly objective markers. Mm. So certainly uh, it's really, really palpable to me when I go into a unit that has been designed with some care and mm. some attention. But one of the key workers, and I won't over, because we've a number of areas to cover here, but I think it is really interesting, the question of leadership. Uh, one of the key um, pioneers in this area, Richard Fleming, when somebody in Australia, when somebody comes to him and says, we'd like to make our nursing home more dementia friendly, he says, show me your dementia care processes first. So there's a synergy, I think, between good design and good care. Mm -hmm. And I think the most important thing we can say here is uh, the worry almost certainly with a large corporation would think possibly, oh, well, if we get the design right, it will improve. I think this is about moving in tandem with leaders in care and leaders in design. Okay. And then Tom, from your perspective, you know, can you shed some light on, on your thoughts on uh, unbuilt environment and nursing homes and, you know, some of the, some of the impact on residents that you're seeing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think both Diana and Des touched on a couple of important things there. I mean, I suppose it's really important for us to remember that, you know, a nursing home is somebody's home. Mm -hmm. uh, that's really a primary thing. It's, it's where they live their life. Um, you know, so the location, design, and operation of a nursing home should should reflect this and provide all the things that probably you and I would would want from a home. And like that's that's complex. Like we want our home to be in our community, somewhere that we recognise as somewhere that you know makes life worthwhile and and kind of special. Mm -hmm. um, it it's you know it provide it needs to be some kind of refuge or retreat. But at the same time, we we want it to be a kind of a a place for social interaction, somewhere where we can invite family members in somewhere where we can celebrate stuff it has to be homely and familiar. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, you know, it's, it's, sh we shouldn't kind of think of pigeonhole older people into this kind of idea that a house is very kind of traditional thing. These are people, you know, that may be living in quite contemporary housing. So, you know, the design should reflect what's going on out, going on out there in society. Mm -hmm. Um, but like a, a definitely a nursing home has to work harder in many ways because 
you know, we are talking about people who may have age-related disabilities or ill health and their movements might be restricted. So mm-hmm. the nursing home becomes a very kind of a special place, a very concentrated place, in fact, where, you know, we really need to, to cater to, to lots of needs and make it a very important and special place. Hmm. Now, when I consider um, nursing care, uh, elder care, and then also in light of the fact that we have, um, you know, at least here in the United States, of course, we have the baby boom generation. So we have like a very large um, an aging population. So it seems like the system is going to be a bit taxed and maybe even more taxed. And on the one hand, you have, you know, nursing homes, they are institutions in the sense that, you know, you're trying to provide a standard of care for a number of people, but then at the same time, you know, each individual has its own, has his or her own individual needs. So there's that balance between the standardized care, standardizing care, and then providing tailored care. So I wonder in light of all of that, I'm going to ask you, Des, as we kind of look to where we're going and the challenges that have, you know, probably been exacerbated because of COVID-19, you know, what did it reveal about existing challenges in the state of nursing care now? And then um, are there additional issues within, within nursing homes? And then maybe kind of take us, kind of point to us where we might, we might start examining going forward. Yeah, no, it's clear that COVID was the great revealer. It's a bit like the Warren Buffett statement that it's when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked. Um, <laughs> And, you know, uh, it really showed that, for example, I think particularly, uh, and it may become clearer as the statistics become clearer, mm-hmm. but financial and other efficiencies uh, tend not to build in resilience. And um, resilience, I think a lack of resilience was, was a key issue here. A lack of sectoral uh, organization mm-hmm. and certainly uh, in, a, in most jurisdictions, there was a separation of the ways between uh, the public health systems, statutory health systems, organized health systems, and those in uh, nursing homes. And I have no doubt in my mind that this uh, was exacerbated also by uh, a lack of creative thinking mm. in how such uh, institutions were built. And I suppose a failure it's interesting. One of the things we looked at, Tom and I, in our studies mm-hmm. was to look at the barriers to healthcare staff. Uh, now, this was a hospital setting, but we hope to look at it in a nursing home setting as well. The barriers to their feeling empowered to make change, to set the agenda around design. So, uh, and indeed, for example, facilities and technical services managers, the people who look after the repainting, putting up shelves, all those sort of things. They, they, they've been very much out of the loop, often not seen as, as healthcare partners. So what's really exciting, I think, about what has emerged from the work that, for example, we've been able to do with Diana around clinicians for design is trying to build up some momentum mm. to give people handholds in this complexity. And in the first instance, I think about reconfiguration and redesign, because we're not going to be going and building a whole load of new ones. So what can we do in terms of reconfiguration, redesign? Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is really is to look at potentially then feeding that into new build. Mm -hmm. So so I think there is a job of work to be done there. But I think there are possibilities and opportunities. And we really must seek out 
leaders and I think we must develop probably educational and other materials around how do I engage with making my environment more empowering, uh, more supportive. On the numbers game, mm -hmm. I think the numbers game are in most of the world relatively reassuring in one hand in that most populations, now there's a little bit of a glitch in the US at the, in recent years, are getting fitter and healthier. So it may well be that the numbers needing residential care effectively flatlines. For example, in Ireland, it's, it's dropped by a third in the last 10 years with an increase in our population. But they are going to be more demanding. And I think this is a really good thing. And I hope we can see more demanding consumerism from the baby boomers as to what they're going to. And to, I just don't want to hog the conversation. Mm. One of the worrying things that happened to me, uh, I did a fair bit of radio work. And mm -hmm. one of the things that came up was how much of the general population says, well, I'd hate to end up in a nursing home. And my response always was, well, let's change the dialogue for your future later life so that you'd say the nursing home is a place I'll happily be in. So, so if the general population are nihilistic, that translates into the politician, it translates into other areas. So there's a job of work around saying this is worth doing to make it right. Pivoting a little bit, uh, you know, from that, let's let's talk for a moment about special frameworks in the context of nursing homes. And you now, Tom, I know that you've you've got some thoughts around spatial scales, and and Diana around design perspective. Let me start with you, Diana, if you, if you don't mind. But you know, can you explain a little bit about a special framework, like particularly in the context of nursing homes, and what are the issues that are covered by it? Sure, and I, I thought maybe I'd piggyback a little bit on what Des was saying with the mm -hmm. earlier question. You know, I think these building types and nursing homes are, are not strangers to the idea of infectious outbreaks, which is interesting, right? Uh, of course, the pandemic and COVID has sort of stretched that boundary, but mm -hmm. the idea of an infection spreading, it, it happens a lot in these facilities, and they have to be ready and be flexible and resilient to them. But I think the current pandemic has really tested the, the limits of that. And I would say some of the existing challenges too within these buildings are the fact that there's many different users. They are homes to the residents who live there, but unlike in our own home where it's really just the nuclear family or the resident themselves, we have staff coming in and we have caregivers and friends and family coming in. So I think that's posed an additional challenge. And I really liked how Des was saying we have to work in tandem with some of the care models and the design. And I would, would wholeheartedly agree with that. And it's not something you can sort of fit one into after the fact. They both have to be thought about together. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of spatial framework and scales is important as architects to think about because I think traditionally, and you know, Des can comment on this, but I think we've sort of viewed nursing homes as a standalone building and not always thought about what's going on around them in the community and even the urban framework, right? These are homes that are integrated into society um, or should be potentially, and how can we how can we do that? And if we think about resiliency, it probably has to go farther than just the the micro environment or just the building, right? The, these residents who live there are interacting with the greater community, or we hope that they do. They have family members who are coming into these facilities, and I think it would be great to see more of a a focus on how to integrate that into communities and urban fabrics and. Tom can probably comment on this as well as an architect and, and mm -hmm. has done a quite a bit of research in this area. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is important. And I think 
across no numerous countries, we see nursing homes and care homes as very isolated from, from the community. And they tend to be, you know, built outside towns or, you know, on the outskirts or whatever, because they're not, you know, they're not seen as something that's kind of inherent to what's going on, or maybe that that's what people want. They want to be removed from life and, and hustle bustle of what's going on. So I think, first of all, you know, just as Diana said, they're taking a um, kind of an almost a planning and urban design focus first as that kind of macro scale is important. I mean, where, where are actually we putting them? Okay, Des makes a good point that we have a lot of existing nursing homes to deal with. Um, but if we say we, you know, we think down the line a bit and say, right, when we're planning new communities or, or we're planning new care homes, where should they go? I mean, they should go where people live. <laughs> they should go in people's communities. Mm -hmm. I mean, as I said earlier on, you know, a sense of home or a sense of, of well-being associated with a home is a lot got to do with not just your house, but it's also your community. And, and that's shown over and over again when people are asked, you know, describe uh, your sense of home or sense of place. They'll, mm. they'll often start outside the home. They'll start in their community. And when, this, you know, when we talk about aging at home, it's not necessarily aging in your house. It's aging within your, your, your kind of natural or home community. So that, that's really important. Mm -hmm. So what we've tried to do is take a kind of a systematic approach, to that, I suppose. And first of all, start at that kind of macro scale, which is you know, the bigger kind of planning picture. You know, where would you locate a, a care home? Um, Within, within a bigger community in terms of proximity to a person's home community, family, friends, access to public transport, all of these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And then kind of almost working down to, you know, what we call the kind of meso scale um, at a geographical scale. That would probably be the local community or the neighborhood. And how does the care home actually interface with the community? It tend to be quite insular. They tend to be, you know, kind of closed away, um, like a lot of institutional buildings. How do they have a far more interactive and I'd say almost kind of relational approach with the community? These, these should be a, an important piece of, of local and, and, and social infrastructure. So that's, that's at that kind of community scale and at the neighborhood scale. And then, of course, drilling down into the building itself and designing you know, the layout and, and components and all of that kind of stuff. That's kind of at the micro scale. But, but I think you need to think up and down through them all the time. I think... You know, I think as architects, urban planners, designers, you, you're, you do that, you, you have a sliding scale almost that you work with, right? And, and you tend to like move up and down that scale quite comfortably. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to bring that to bear on, on, on these kinds of designs. And probably the word, you know, we could use here is a continuum. Are we creating a kind of a, a continuum of care, you know, or a continuum of, of living? Are people you know, connected in a way that we want to be, uh, you know, when we're living at home and not living in a care home, can we move out and about in the community? Is there a kind of a seamless transition? Now, these are challenges, of course, for a pandemic. You know, in a way, what we're talking about here is this kind of really real integration, but then a pandemic comes along and says, actually, no, we want to close the gates and close the doors and protect people. Mm -hmm. But in the long run, that can be quite damaging for people's resilience. We know that resilience is underpinned and strengthened by your, your sense of who you are, your strength you draw from your family and so on. So, you know, we're careful that we don't kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater for want of a better impression, a better expression. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, you know, that concept of con uh, continuum and um, the sense of home, you know, that you're touching on because you, you think about, you think about, the average person who's entering into a facility like this. I mean, typically I would say, and I don't know if there's any typical case, but it's a person who is going from some sort of situation where there was an, in, they were independently living 
or maybe, you know, living in their own home. Maybe they had some help, but they were living in their own home. And then suddenly they're being put into, you know, they're being put into communal living. It's, it's, it's can be a, a quite a radical shift. And then going back to what Des was saying earlier about, you know, that so much of your health is really around subjectively how you feel and not in, you know, maybe even sometimes more so than objectively. So you're putting these patients in a situation or the current system is kind of putting them in a situation where it is disruptive and there is maybe that kind of a, uh, it undercuts that sense of home and there's some anxiety. So it's kind of interesting to think about this, that as you're designing both in the community and then like you're saying, Tom, at the micro level, like the, the home that they're going to, the place they're going to call home, how important that is to establish, you know, that, that sense of well-being. And now Des, you know, kind of in that, in that vein, what do you, you know, as a, you know, from a clinical perspective, what do you see as an ideal environment for nursing home residents and what's going to help them thrive and be resilient? Yeah, I think the key here is taking a leaf out of the book of the greenhouse and Eden alternative, which is largely around emphasizing and prioritizing empowerment of domesticity and modesty of scale within an individual unit while still allowing for the complex healthcare needs that are, that are involved. So particularly around also making communal spaces or where breakout or where you're going to meet family and friends, smaller, more intimate, breaking up the spaces. So you don't have a sense of living in your bedroom or just having a large room. Uh, my, 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 my imagination as a non-architect would be something like the petals of a daisy, where each petal would be a 10-bedded unit with its own front door, uh, and which people would then know their co-residents and feel perhaps part of unit, but be private. And also to bear in mind issues around biophilic design, particularly whether it's hanging gardens or gardens outside, hugely important, natural light and air to the greatest extent possible. And to bear in mind things like smoking and the ability to, if you have a strict smoking ban within the building, is to bear in mind that these are disabled people towards the end of their life. And if that's their pleasure, that's their pleasure. So this is, you know, it, it takes a lot of convincing in many ways that this is something that will empower, make people better, feel better, and make life better for staff. I think we often don't think about uh, quality of life for the staff. I think for both residents and staff and the system, this is the way forward. Uh, let me, Diana. Let me uh, bring you in on this. So you are, uh, you are what we refer to as a docitect. Uh, you are both a doctor and an architect, which you know, to me, just blows my mind. You know, so um, can you can you kind of weigh into on on this idea of like what an ideal environment for nursing home residents might look like, and, and what's going to help them thrive and be resilient. I'll, I'll try to wear both hats when I <laughs> when I answer that or talk about it. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to wear them both at the same time. But yeah. I, I really liked what Tom said about the continuum of care. And I think when we explain this sort of spatial scales from an architectural perspective, because I'm not sure how many architects are listening versus clinicians versus mm -hmm. engineers, I think a sort of, I, I guess, um, analogy to medical care and healthcare is the idea of providing individual care at the level of physician and patient but then also public health, right, which has really grown as a field. 
Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we address healthcare of, of larger groups and bigger societies. And so we're sort of doing the same thing, I think, with our design and thinking about the individual resident in their, their room or in this home, but also how does the home fit into the greater context? How do we think about the well-being of all the residents and their families and the staff even that work there? So just a bit of an analogy to, to public health, which I think might be important. Public health is very important when, when we think about the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, the ideal environment you know, I think Des hit the nail on the head when he talked about the greenhouse model and sort of domestic scales. Those are very important to consider. Mm -hmm. Geriatric medicine, we, we talk about geriatric syndromes that people might experience. You know, I think resiliency can diminish as we age and we become more frail in the sense that smaller stresses can send us sort of over the edge of the cliff faster than if we were, were younger and had more resiliencies or built into our physiology. But in geriatric medicine, we talk a lot about the five M's. So these are sort of a, a common way of sort of thinking about geriatric issues when we see patients, let's say in the clinic or in the nursing home, but we think about things like mobility, right? If they're using assistive devices, how can they get around? We think about fall prevention. We think about medications that they're on. We think about this idea of multi-complexity, right? It's very common that older adults have many different chronic illnesses going on at the same time. And how do we balance that? We think about another M, which is mind, and we think about mood, which is so important, and we think about uh, memory and, and problems with dementia as people age. Mm -hmm. And then we think about what matters most to people in terms of their goals of care, what they want to be doing with their time, uh, what's important towards the end of someone's life. And I wonder, Des, if when we think about design, we can think about these sort of five M's or these geriatric clinical syndromes and figure out how the environment can, can foster and you know, promote each one of them. Um, and I think that it can, and I think we probably even have some research in each of those areas that could help guide us in our designs. But I, I definitely agree that the way forward is to work clinicians and architects together and even expand it to think about those who are planning these sites and funding these sites and how can we all work together to develop these multidisciplinary solutions. I'm not sure we can work in silos anymore. Okay. And then uh, my last question for today is... Uh, is kind of the flip side on the ideal environment and it's what are the obstacles? What do we need to overcome to be able to achieve built and uh, ideal built environments for nursing homes? And so let me, let me do this. Let me start with Des and then uh, to kind of get the, the, the clinical perspective. And then Diana, I'm going to ask you to, to, to weigh in on that. And then Tom, give us the, the architectural, you know, follow up as well. But so Des, you know, starting with you, what, what obstacles uh, do we sure. need to overcome? Yeah, I think the first obstacle is probably an attitudinal educational one. Uh, like I was quite shocked uh, in the mid 2010s uh, on the site where we were working, uh, a nursing home was designed without asking the specialist gerontological nurses or the specialist geriatricians, you know, what their inputs would be. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the rooms are fine, but it's very institutional. And um, so I think. Uh, there needs to be developing an awareness that this actually makes a difference. It makes a difference to the residents. It makes a difference very likely to healthcare costs. It, it very, very likely improves resilience. Good design almost certainly uh, will equate with better infection control. So I do think that it's around uh, education and awareness. I think there needs to be probably, there's quite a significant amount of private chains involved. Mm -hmm. So I think around uh, uh, trying to reach in to, the, to commissioners, both state commissioners, and also uh, effectively those who are commissioning from the private sector. 
teasing out um, exemplars, I think, is very useful. For example, one of the things we did with the hospitals is we created a digital book of, of exemplars. So if people saw, I think there's a lot to be said for um, a, a, a templates, models. And I think Diana's, there's a bit of work back to us still. And I think Diana's point is very nice about the five M's. We, we need to provide hooks. Those of us who are embedded in this, you know, we almost take for granted what we're saying. But I think there needs to be a, a sense of a realism, a pragmatism. This will meet this M. This will meet this M to a certain extent. So mm. education, awareness, and teasing out who are the key um, stakeholders who are going to make a difference. Okay. And then Diana, same question for you. You know, what obstacles do you see that we need to uh, achieve or what are the obstacles that need to be overcome to achieve an ideal built environment for nursing homes? Yeah, I think there's a few, Paul. Um, I, th- I certainly think a culture change is needed and, and probably a culture change with respect to ageism and how we view the importance of older adults and their contribution to our societies and how we integrate them into our urban fabric with respect to the buildings. That's, that's a big change, right? And it's, it differs country to country, but I, I do think that's probably needed here in, in North America. I think, you know, I'm a big supporter of evidence-based design and thinking about how can we quantify the impacts of the built environment. And once you do that, you could even put it in the context of financial incentives or returns on investment because, because there are, you know, financial concerns, I think, that have been brought up with changing the way we build some of these centers. But I do think the research is showing us that if we do it right at the beginning and if we use good evidence-based design principles, we can not only achieve you know, better health outcomes, better quality of life, but also potentially even cost benefits, which I think is important to some groups in thinking about this problem. So I, I would like to see um, more research in this area and that has to come from, I think, a collaboration from both medicine and architecture and the financial community and the, the leadership. Um, it can't just be one of those. But uh, it'll be important because we know the environment can influence behavior in many ways and outcomes. But mm-hmm. we, just like in medicine, we, we base our treatment decisions um, and our medication decisions on good research. I think we're tending to do that more and more in architecture and design, and, and we're going to need more research going forward. Okay. And then, Tom, uh, on your perspective on the obstacles uh, that need to be overcome? Yeah, I think the guys hit on a lot of them there. It's funny. Uh, the first thing that springs to mind for me, and, and both, both of my colleagues mentioned it, is, is a, actually ageism in the design profession. I think there's, you know, it's hard, it's hard to generate a kind of a, a real interest um, among a lot of architects in this area. I mean, designing nursing homes isn't seen as a sexy thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. And we, we know that, um, you, know, when you're, you know, when you're an architect and you want to win awards and stuff, you know, it's the kind of glossy magazines and, and the big architecture awards and stuff that are important. And that's like museums and cool mm. stuff, right? So mm-hmm. it's not actually seen as that. And that's, that's a bit of a problem um, because it's an incredibly fascinating and challenging area to work with. So I think there's a big bit around education, professional training and so on that we need to start dealing with. And, you know, as we've all talked about here, bringing together these professions to, to learn from each other. There's an, incredibly, there's an incredible kind of low bar, I think. The, the culture, the accepted norms around, you know, care home and long-term um, care design is, in, is incredible. Um, the poor standards that, that are accepted. You know, we see, we see the, the kind of innovation around housing. We see the innovation around hotels and restaurants and offices now. But there's very little of that in long-term care. It's, it's these very kind of staid and, and stilted models. So that's, 
there's an intransigence almost of existing models. They're really hard to, to, to break open and move along. So I think that's, that's a major thing. Then from the point of view of, you know, planning and building control and, and building standards and so on. I mean, that's, you know, that's really important. We've looked at over the last couple of decades, you know, the, the distance that, you know, accessibility and, and design for disability, how far that's moved. I mean, that was, that was a kind of a niche thing just a couple of years ago, whereas now oh, nearly all, uh, you know, um, planning systems and building standards and building control and so on have it built in and they have a good understanding, even, even a planner that's looking at um, any kind of a development now understands about wheelchair access and so on. What we find, and, and certainly it's the case in Ireland, and I argued it was probably the same all over the world, mm -hmm. you have uh, planning applications um, being made to local authorities without, and they have really no filter, they've really no training to understand what's good or what's bad. Mm. And then, so it gets planning permission. And that, you know, from a developer's point of view or a client's point of view, that is locked down. You're really not going to change that design. And what happens then is people get brought in, you know, mm. geriatricians like, Des get asked, okay, so, you know, what would you advise us? And it's, you know, the, the horse is, <laughs> is running down the field at that stage. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's way too late. So we need a proper level of awareness and understanding and training at a planning level that when they receive these applications and they look at the designs, they go, well, no, this isn't, this isn't right. This isn't working. Mm. Um, so that, that's, that's a major thing. So look, there's a lot of things, but there, there are certainly some major obstacles in terms of good, helpful nurse, nursing home design. So it sounds like some of it is changing the incentive model for like, say, architects, you know, for like, so that it's, you know, like you were saying with like the awards and things like that. So it, it becomes a little more um, attractive to really put their thought into like what, what makes for good design. Um, and also maybe perhaps at the, uh, the municipal level or the planning stage level, um, you know, having yeah. like a physician on staff or somebody who can actually consult you know, yep. so when these applications come in, then it's like, well, let's take a, let's have Dr. Smith take a look at it before we approve this and that sort of thing. Uh, Des, I, I think you might have had a comment that you'd want to, you wanted to. Yeah, I suppose it's interesting. You know, I'm fully with uh, Diana on, um, on going evidence-based as much as possible. But we also have, I suppose, a key issue now. Mm -hmm. And I think the other element of this is actually curation. And I think, you know, if you take a thought leader, you know, or a very influential group like Jacobs, there's an issue of putting something out into a spotlight, of bringing people into a new culture. Hans Ulrich Obrist is, uh, has written this wonderful thing, ways of curating. So I think there is a really interesting opportunity to look at uh, how we can curate this artfully. And uh, I, I, in a sense, I have some faith that, um, you know, nobody went out and did evidence-based stuff for making hotels nice. Nobody did evidence-based stuff really to make restaurants, you know, uh, 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 nice and attractive. So uh, I think, uh, you know, the evidence is fantastic if you have it, but it's a complex area to, to you know, it's very difficult to see how you could do randomized controlled trials. Mm -hmm. And there's also this challenge that if you get a well-designed nursing home, back to Richard Fleming, it's very likely that arose from a well-designed culture of care, so disentangling. So mm -hmm. I think, smart curation and uh, promotion of the rewards is is we need we need a little bit of genius around curation hmm. no it's, i think that's very well said and and you're right it, it it you know i guess as an average citizen i don't think about it you th you think somebody makes a restaurant or a public 
building, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to create it aesthetically pleasing, but they're also creating it typically for, you know, for younger people or people who are not like, like an elder care facility constituency, which is going to have its own special medical needs on top of uh, trying to just make the building look nice or functional or whatnot. So um, um, could I, I just, just one, one thing there that strikes me and, and it's one of the areas that as you know, the, the, as a team here, the mm-hmm. Diana and Des and, and Sean and that we've been looking at is the kind of overlap or reinforcing that goes on between quality life and care homes resilience and, and infection control. These, these aren't mutually exclusive things. And this is, this is a really important point, I think, that you know, a lot of the really good models we're looking at, Des mentioned the Eden Alternative and the Greenhouse model and so on, you know, they're always rated as really high quality environments. They fit into the community. They have all of the things we're talking about. And yet they've, they've had really good record in terms of infection levels and so on. So you know, it's, it's not like, um, the, you know, by doing one thing, you compromise another. In fact, there's a kind of a sweet spot here that really needs to be investigated. And when you reinforce one thing, you're reinforcing the other. So, you know, we, we know, looking at the evidence, as, as Diana says there, that we know that we can, when we start focusing on quality of life, resilience and pan- pandemic uh, preparedness, these things actually converge rather than diverge. So that's, that's a really exciting opportunity. Excellent. And then, um, Diana, so just kind of as we, uh, as we're kind of closing today's discussion around elder care, I just wanted to kind of turn it over to you to, you had some, some closing thoughts that you, uh, around this topic and kind of where we can go from here. Yeah, I think Tom just said it best just bef- before they're not mutually exclusive. And I think part of the driver, uh, for us to get together and write about this is I think, at least for me, I'm very concerned with what I'm seeing, Uh, around COVID and nursing homes and long-term care, I see a reactionary approach saying, you know, let's uh, change the design. Let's uh, have negative pressure rooms. Let's close all the doors. Certainly if you lock someone in a room, they're not going to get an infection, right? And so there's, I think, a very reactionary approach going on. How do we change it going forward? I think this is a mistake and I don't think infection control can drive our care model or our design model for these types of facilities going forward. That would, that would be that would have a huge impact um, in, an, in a negative sense. So I think, uh, you know, I agree with Tom and, and Des, this idea of resiliency and always keeping in mind quality of life, which you're right, probably isn't quantified in some of the evidence-based design. So I think evidence alongside just what we know to be good quality design, quality of life in general, and, and listening to people who are living in these facilities, that's extremely important, living and working there, because I think the staff who work there are equally as important. But they, they need to have a voice in this. And we're all going to get, well, many of us will get to that stage. And, you know, thinking about where we would like to be is very important. But we have to be very proactive. And we, we can't let COVID shift our thinking to just design for infection control. We have to design for resiliency in general. No, and I think that's, that's, that's a great thing to keep in mind because it's, it's not a matter of living in a bubble. It's, you know, it's the difference between surviving and living, right? I think we all aspire to live long, healthy lives. And when we're at the end of our lives, you know, we want to be happy. And, and like Des said earlier, you know, it's a mindset thing, you know, so nobody's going to be happy if they're like in an infection control room and that's, you know, that's their environment. They want to actually live. We were designed, we were created to live. So Diana, Tom, Des, thank you all so much. Uh, very fascinating conversation and uh, be really interesting to see kind of how we, uh, we shift elder care facility design and build, built environments as we kind of move forward. 
uh, hopefully getting this pandemic uh, behind us. So thank you so much for your time and energy today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. Our pleasure. Thank you.